You're listening to Coffeehouse Questions with Ryan Pauly. You know, recently I've, I've had a few um, people write me and, and ask me, when are you going to do a discussion? When are you going to do a podcast on the topic of homosexuality? Uh, we would love to hear your thoughts. And so uh, that is what we are going to be talking about today. But in order to do that, I wanted to bring in uh, someone who has a little bit more knowledge in this area than I do and has uh, traveled around the country speaking on this issue. And so joining me today uh, is Alan Schleeman. He is a speaker with Stand to Reason uh, and just travels the country speaking on a lot of the more difficult issues. And so uh, without kind of giving too much of an introduction, at least at this point, uh, Alan, thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, you bet. Thanks, Ryan, for having me on. So kind of in part of your introduction, how did you get stuck with, or maybe that's not the right word to use, uh, with the more difficult issues, you know, abortion, homosexuality, transgender issues, Islam, uh, stem cell research? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's probably a different answer for each of those. Like, for example, with Islam, I think standard reason was like, you know, we need somebody to focus on this topic. And since I'm 100% Middle Eastern, you know, I'm, I'm 100% Assyrian, my family's from Baghdad, Iraq, and I kind of have that, you know, Middle Eastern connection, it seemed like a natural fit that I would be the one who would sort of take on that topic and maybe do a little extra study in a more uh, formal uh, graduate, at a, for, at a more formal graduate level uh, to sort of add to the personal experience I have with just being Middle Eastern and knowing a lot of Muslims uh, throughout my life. So. Uh, I think that's why that topic got thrown my way. Okay. And and then, uh, I mean, abortion, well, technically all of us at Standard Reason speak on abortion. I guess I do a lot of that, and I'm not sure how that one ended up in my corner. Um, but then on homosexuality, again, we all sort of address the topic, but I've had um, you know friends and family, close friends and close family who I've known for many years and have had to sort of wrestle with how do I navigate everyday relationships – uh, with these people who are close to me without compromising my convictions and yet still maintaining a relationship with these people. And so yeah. I sort of have a lot of, you know, maybe hands-on practical experience that, that, inf that helps to add to the biblical, uh, understanding I have of the topic as well. Yeah. And so you're, you're not just someone coming at this kind of just completely from the outside, but you have, you know, close family and friends that would uh, consider themselves, um, homosexual. And, and so you kind of have that practical personal experience that's right that's right yeah and so and i mean i'm sure everybody has some friends and family uh who identify as gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender so it's, i'm not saying that you know i'm unique in that but yeah uh just because i've had close friends and family and and have had to navigate this topic for a long time uh to sort of help me and my wife figure out man how, how do we what, what should we do in this situation you know yeah. here's a question we're facing how do we handle it you know in a biblically consistent but also compassionate way yeah, absolutely. And so, so for those of you that are listening, uh, just to kind of heads up, what what we're kind of planning on doing is is uh, I'm going to be talking with Alan uh, for two weeks or two parts uh, to this podcast. So part one is going to be uh, homosexuality, truth and compassion, and looking at the topic of homosexuality and how do Christians, how should we answer, how should we respond, how should we look at this um, issue, and then uh, next week is going to be transgender truth and compassion. And so we're going to kind of be looking and getting a perspective on both of these views. Um, but how how long have you been um, kind of speaking on these issues, and how long have you been with Stand to Reason? Well, I joined Stand to Reason as a speaker back in uh, let's see, 2004. 
Uh, my wife and I actually became aware of them in 1997 and were volunteering for them for many years. But it was in 2004 that I became a full-time speaker. And so it's been about, you know, uh, 12 or so years. Okay, awesome. And, you know, in that time, you've done a lot of speaking, uh, writing. Um, the first thing that we're going to talk about is the topic of homosexuality. You've written a chapter in uh, Sean McDowell's book uh, called Apologetics for a New Generation, a biblically and culturally relevant approach to talking about God, um, titled Homosexuality, uh, Know the Truth and Speak It with Compassion. Uh, and then you've also written the Ambassador's Guide for Standard Reason on uh, understanding homosexuality. So you've written a few things, and, and you just mentioned to me that the chapter from Sean McDowell's book is on the, the STR website where people can access that? Yeah, the publisher has made that available to the public. So if you just go to our website at str.org uh, and just uh, search for homosexuality, truth, and compassion, you should see an article there. That says, you know, this is edit. This is from Sean McDowell's book, you know, with released with permission and so on and so forth. And you'll see the whole contents of that chapter made available there for free. Good. So, so those people can can they can listen to this podcast and uh, kind of hear your thoughts and maybe some thoughts that aren't included in that chapter, but also they can go uh, and read that chapter and kind of go back and and review some of the points that we're going to be making uh, throughout this episode. Yeah, um, absolutely. Uh, you were also just telling me that you just uh, returned from ETS, which for those of you who don't know is the Evangelical Theological Society, uh, which was meeting in San Antonio, correct? Yep. And you sat through what – is, what is kind of the purpose? It's where people – scholars write papers and present their papers, and you just kind of listen to them do their presentations. That's exactly right. And then some of them have panels where they'll have differing points of view, and in this case, that was what was happening. Zondervan has released a new book called – Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church, and they offered um, the, the four authors who contributed to that book to be panelists at, an, at this sort of presentation at ETS. So two of the authors are uh, what they would call gay-affirming, uh, and two of the authors are uh, kind of like the traditional view, which says that no, homosexual sex is not permitted. Okay. And so they had, a, they had a discussion on the, on the contents of their book. Interesting. Uh, are you going to be planning on writing any blogs or any response to kind of your experience at ETS? I yeah, I might. I mean, I want to because I was really frustrated by it because it felt like the two people who were gay affirming uh, presented very uh, persuasive, eloquent, and clear articulations of their view, and the two guys that were you know quote unquote on our side uh, just didn't do. I felt a very good job, and um, uh, and even when there was people question you know questions coming from the audience. Um, uh, it didn't seem like the questions were acknowledged and answered by the people who were affirming a, a kind of a pro-gay theology. And indeed, sometimes even the guys that were on our side defended the pro-gay theology view. Hmm. I mean, in the sense of, you know, because we, we raised questions about their, their view of Scripture. We said, well, you know, how can these people who are advancing pro-gay theology argue that Paul, the Apostle Paul, didn't have full knowledge of sexuality and biology, and so therefore, maybe you know what he's saying is limited. And we're like, well, wait a minute, you know, the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit, even the words of Paul. So, I mean, you can't just you know dismiss Paul's view or downplay his view. Uh, you know, how is this a high view of Scripture? And then hmm. when we asked that question of the of the gay affirming panelists, the people who are on the traditional side said, no, 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 the, the gay-affirming people do have a high view of Scripture. And we're like, well, wait a minute, what's going on, you know? Huh. Uh, why are you defending them? And then even the gay-affirming people would say things like, um, you know, uh, they would make arguments saying, well, 
the the Bible used to, commands us to uh, get circumcised, but notice the church doesn't follow circumcision anymore. We had to kind of wrestle with that, and and so we had to change our minds on this topic. And so therefore, it's okay we change our minds on homosexuality, which is a terrible argument because clearly, you know, the New Testament ex- describes, um, you know, circumcision as being no longer physical circumcision, but rather a circumcision of the heart. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, we're not required to follow that. Yeah. So there's a there's a theological explanation as to why we don't follow that. It's not that we just sort of are ignoring what the Bible says, and we thought that it was mistaken, or things that you know things have changed, and so therefore we can also change what the Bible says about homosexuality. Yeah. But even though that kind of an argument was made, no one responded to it, and okay. there was all sorts of really bad arguments that were not answered, and so it left people, participants in the panel, or I should say in the audience, left with this sort of, well. It seems like the gay-affirming view is far more credible, and that was a little bit frustrating for me. Yeah, I can bet. Wow. Well, um, we're going to take a little bit of time in the next 20 minutes or so and kind of go over some of these points and, and think about how to respond. But uh, I know that this is one issue that, uh, you know, in fact, I told someone today that I was doing this issue, and they said, well, why don't you talk about an issue that people actually care about? And that uh, is actually discussed in society. You know, <laughs> this is one of the hot button issues uh, in our discussions, especially, you know, with the, the president and just everything that's happening in our country right now. Uh, so I do want to just before we jump in, say that, you know, if, if this discussion brings up any questions that you have uh, or or comments or anything like that. I just want to remind you that you can uh, email in at, co- at contact at coffeehousequestions.com. Uh, you can go to Facebook at the Coffeehouse Questions Facebook page, uh, my Twitter, RyanPolly3, or the uh, Google Voice phone number, which is created just for text message questions, uh, which is 714-989-6927. And I'm sure you can also go to str.org, find more information uh, there. Um, so kind of, I, I think... The first thing I have for you is this idea of why should we really care about this as Christians? You know, maybe this, the culture is going a certain way. You know, why should we care? And um, you you mentioned something in uh, in your article that you wrote in Sean's book. You said 91% of young non-Christians and 80% of young churchgoers perceive Christianity as anti-homosexual. Uh, that we kind of have this anti um homosexual attitude within Christianity. Would you say that's normal as you travel the country speaking on these issues? Yeah, so definitely the culture perceives Christians to be hateful towards homosexuals. And uh, although there's a lot of things that I think the church and Christians have done to contribute to that impression, I think generally speaking, that's largely untrue. That is, I don't think most Christians hate homosexuals. I think that's the perception that's been given as a result mm-hmm. of various factors. And I think perhaps the media has you know, played into this by highlighting very prominent uh, and or I should say very loud uh, people who are very anti-homosexual in the in the sense of they actually are truly hateful towards homosexuals, you know. You know, people like the um, I forgot the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, the God's God hates fags dot com people. And it just seems like people like them are given a lot of attention uh, when they don't really represent mainstream, you know, evangelicalism or for the most part, even most Christians. Yeah. I think most Christians would say, look, we think the Bible teaches that homosexual behavior is a sin. But we love people who are homosexuals. You know, I mean, most of us have friends and family who are homosexuals. And we don't hate them. We love them. And in fact, that's a that's a very normal thing for us to do, because all of us as Christians have friends and family that are not Christians that aren't homosexual, but that are engaged in all sorts of sin. Many of them are inv- involved in sexual sin. 
And yet we don't hate those people. Mm-hmm. You know, we probably have friends that we go play tennis with or watch movies with or we study with that aren't Christians that maybe have sex in a heterosexual way outside of marriage. And yet we're, we spend time with them. We love them just like we do anybody else. So I don't see why the same, you know, same thing can't be applied to our homosexual friends and family as yeah. well. So what would you say to someone who says, you know, with that being the case, why are you so focused on this idea of of homosexuality and this issue rather than all these other things? Well, I would say I I wouldn't normally be focused on this, but it's the fact that the culture is demanding that Christians abandon sort of what we we believe is the biblical view of homosexuality and adopt a pro-gay theology view or just be gay affirming or, you know, accept same-sex marriage. And so – Really, we're in a more defensive posture. I would say we would not be bringing this up all the time if it were not for culture bringing it up all the time. And also, a lot of Christians are feel like they're in a dilemma. They feel like, well, we have friends and family who identify as gay and lesbian, and we want to be loving towards them, but we also don't want to compromise our convictions. So they are they're asking for practical um, uh, tactics and tools and, and uh, approaches to relating to these friends and family. And so this is why I'm speaking to it, because I'm being asked this all the time. In fact, my number one topic that I'm invited to teach on is homosexuality. Wow. I mean, I mean, you know, three out of four talks I'm, I'm invited to teach on is on this topic, because there's this desperate need for people to have a, an understanding of how to handle uh, their relationships. And how do you see the response of the church um, after you kind of before and after you teach on the topic of homosexuality? Well, I think for the most part, a lot of people feel like, yeah, they think homosexuality is sin, but they don't know how that's going to flush itself out in a practical in practical ways with their friends and family. After I come and I teach, then they kind of be like, oh, okay, yes, what you said resonates with our beliefs about what Scripture says, but now we have some practical kind of like how-tos of navigating our relationships with our my brother or my sister or my friend or my father or whoever who says they're gay or lesbian. Now I know kind of what to do, you know. Okay. So so that's what I want to do the rest of our time uh, here together, starting with uh, the topic of homosexuality, is is to give the practical, you know, kind of arguments, responses, and tactics needed to maneuver in these conversations. And in your uh, chapter that you wrote, you broke it up into two parts. Uh, and the topic of this is homosexuality, truth, and compassion. And so the first part is truth. And you say that we have to know the truth, and it starts with biblical uh, truth. And uh, in your article, you mentioned that uh, there's six main passages uh, that kind of deal with homosexuality, uh, but we just need to focus on one, and that being Romans 1, uh, 26 to 27. Could you kind of explain why uh, maybe that should be the one to focus on? Yeah, um, so Romans 1, I believe, is the most strategic passage on this question. I'm not saying that the other five do not clearly teach that homosexual behavior is a sin. They do. But Romans 1 is the most strategically defensible and straightforward text. And I think it has a lot of advantages. Number one, it's the only text that addresses both male and female homosexuality in one passage. So that's kind of nice. I do think the other passages imply that, but they don't say it explicitly. And so therefore, they require an additional explanation in order to make that clear. Romans 1 just says, you know, both the women and the men abandon the natural sexual function of each other. You know, so so clearly lesbianism and, and uh, male homosexuality is listed there. And that's and so for that reason, I think Romans 1 is a better text. OK, the, the, 
And so with the second with the second part have to deal with the kind of what you mentioned at the very beginning uh, of this issue with Old Testament passages. And why is it that we want to take some Old Testament passages from Leviticus, but then throw out others and not obey others? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So if you if you cite, say, Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, which both condemn homosexual behavior in clear, unmistakable terms, a lot of people say, well, wait a minute. Leviticus also prohibits people from wearing, you know, clothes made out of two different kinds of linen mm-hmm. or pro- prohibits people from eating shellfish or bacon, which, by the way, we'd never want to, you know, follow that command. <laughs> <laughs> that would and be so, a bad one. Right. So you Christians, it's like you don't care about those all those other prohibitions, but when it comes to homosexuality, oh, yeah, you do care, you know. And so they see us as inconsistent. And so Romans – and so now – they have a point, by the way. There is some truth to this objection that they're raising against us because it's true. We don't follow all the Levitical prohibitions, mm-hmm. and that's because they are part of the Mosaic law, which was um, a, a part of the, the contract that God had established with, with Moses and the people of Israel in the theocracy under Israel. We are no longer under the theocracy, and Christ has fulfilled the terms of that law. So we are no longer bound to it. So there is some legitimacy to the point they're making. Okay. Now, I think there is a way to understand that actually the Leviticus prohibition of homosexuality is actually a universal moral principle that still does apply to the New Testament. But notice you have to make an additional argument in order to clarify how that's made. Romans 1, however, is not just a New Testament text. It's a New Covenant text, meaning it's written – after Christ establishes the new covenant in his blood, which is the covenant that governs Christian behavior primarily today. And so therefore, you, it can't be dismissed with by saying, well, that's just part of the old law. You know, No, new, new, Romans 1 is written during the new covenant under the new law. So therefore, it's, it doesn't have that liability. Okay, so, so kind of based on Romans 1, we can kind of create a good biblical reason and argument saying that, look, homosexual behavior with both men and women is considered to be... Uh, a sin. Uh, so how would you then respond to someone who says, you know, well, I don't accept biblical reasons. I'm not a Christian. I don't, you know, that's just your religion. So if, if they're not claiming to be a Christian, I, I wouldn't be in the least bit interested in persuading them that um, homosexual sex is sin. Uh, if they're not a Christian, my, my main concern with that kind of a person would be to just present them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, so I'm not I'm not in any way trying to tell non-Christians, hey, you got to accept what the Bible says about all these moral restrictions about homosexual sex or lying or cheating or stealing. No, I, I don't expect non-Christians to adopt that mm-hmm. that those principles. So my message to them wouldn't be, hey, let me tell you what the Bible says about homosexuality. No, yeah. my, my message to them would be, let me tell you what the Bible says about your crimes that you've committed against God. <laughs> And if you've committed crimes against God, that means you're guilty and deserve to be punished, and that's why the gospel is something that they need to hear. So I would present the gospel to them, yeah. not try to convince them that the Bible says something about homosexuality. Well, and it's kind of like you know when you're evangelizing or talking to anyone that's not a non-believer, you know, you don't necessarily address all these specific sins. It's it's the whole idea that we are just sinful with apart from Christ. That's right. Exactly right. Yeah. I mean, it does does. Is there a way to show that there's something unnatural about homosexuality without using the Bible? Well, of course there is, and you can you can appeal to just simply scientific uh, principles of of anatomy and physiology to show that. Mm-hmm. But all that would show is that when homosexuals engage in um, their sexual activities, they are using the body in a way that it's not made to function, 
And that's just simply looking at the basics of anatomy and physiology. Yeah. That wouldn't show that it's sin, but it does show that it's not a, a natural act. Yeah. And so what about kind of the person who would object and say, well, but it's 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 genetic. You know, maybe they're born this way and so they should it should be okay. Well, I mean, so you're probably familiar with uh, the the um, Colombo tactic, but mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, whenever somebody makes a claim, um, it's their job to bear the burden of proof to show that it's a true claim. Okay, it's not your job to defend against it. So my my initial response to someone who claims it's genetic would be to say, well, w- what's the evidence you have that it's genetic? And the reason why I'd put the burden of proof back on them is not just because they've made the claim and they're therefore they're the ones who are supposed to defend it, but in actuality. If you look at all the scientific researchers who are publishing in mainstream scientific journals that are secular journals, and these are secular researchers, many of them who are attitudinally pro-gay or they are gay researchers themselves, when you look at the findings of their research, they are coming out with the declaration that homosexuals are not born this way genetically. Mm. In fact, the two pioneers in sexual orientation research, Simon LeVay and Dean Hamer, who are Harvard-trained university uh, scientists, who are openly gay men, both of them, who initially produced studies that seem to suggest that people were genetically born gay, have now backtracked and said their research does not show that people are born gay. And the reasoning they they provide for that is that gen- is that twin studies, identical twin studies, are are now showing that no homosexuals are not born that way and. The reason this is the case is because identical twins not only share identical looks, they share identical genes. And so people started to ask the question, wait a minute, if homosexuality is truly genetic, like many people are claiming, then whenever we have one twin brother that has same-sex attraction, the co-twin, their other twin brother, should also have same-sex attraction about 100% of the time. Mm -hmm. And so they went to Australia where there is a twin registry of about – I think it's 25,000 sets of identical twin male brothers. And when they looked at these 25,000 sets of twins and they looked at what's called the concordance rate, the concordance rate is the rate at which whenever you have one twin brother, one twin uh, brother with same-sex attraction, what is the percentage rate that the other co-twin also has same-sex attraction? They expected the concordance rate to be about 100% or close to it if homosexuality was genetic. But it turned out that the concordance rate was about 11 to 13 percent, meaning most times when one twin brother had same-sex attraction, the other twin brother did not have same-sex attraction. And so this was the death knell to the idea that homosexuality is, is just simply genetic. And most researchers are saying, no, it's not genetic. And the American Psych- uh, Psychological Association, which is the secular organization that deals with psychology, that – perhaps has the most authority to speak on this topic, is now saying, you are not born this way. The, the, the evidence does not play that self out anymore. Hmm. It's, it's amazing. Most of the researchers say it's, you're not born this way, even though the rest of the culture still thinks it's the case. Wow. That's incredible. So, so with that kind of being said, that they're not born this way, how would you then respond to someone who says, well, if they're not born that way, then it must be a choice? Well, I would say that that is also a cultural myth, but really a cultural myth that's believed by Christians. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I don't think it's true that that and, and let me just clarify here, 
I'm making a distinction here between the the behavior, homosexual behavior, and the experience of same-sex attraction. So yes, same-sex behavior is chosen because, after all, most behavior is chosen. But my question is, what is the cause of same-sex attraction? Is it merely a matter of choice? Do people wake up and say, hmm, today I feel like being attracted to males or to females? And my contention is the answer is no, they don't choose that. And here's how I think I know. Number one is my friends and family who identify as gay and lesbian, when I've asked them, did you choose your same-sex attraction? They all have said no. Why would I choose that? Definitely not. Hmm. Now, a lot of people respond to me, especially Christians, and say, well, Alan, of course they're going to say no. They're gay and lesbian people. Why would they acknowledge that they chose it? Now, I don't think my friends and family who are gay are lying to me. But nevertheless, I'm sympathetic to my Christian friends who are skeptical. So let me offer, though, another group of people that maybe we should listen to, and that is Christians who love Jesus Christ, who have same-sex attraction, but do not think lustfully about those attractions, nor do they engage in same-sex sexual intercourse either. And when I ask them, did you choose to have same-sex attraction? They all tell me, no, why would I choose to have same-sex attraction? Why would I choose to have attractions that, that I cannot fulfill and become and, and remain a faithful, consistent Christian? Mm-hmm. So if I had chosen those attractions, I would gladly choose to will those attractions away and choose heterosexual attractions. I've tried to willfully choose that, but I can't. And the reason is, is because same-sex attractions or and, and consequently also heterosexual attractions are not something that people simply choose. Wow. You know, so I, I think all the evidence shows that this is not something that's chosen. Yes, behavior is chosen, but not the experience of same-sex attraction. Yeah. And that is one of uh, your points uh, in your article on how kind of to respond. And so we have a couple minutes left uh, for part one, which means uh, this has been such a great discussion. We're probably going to have to carry over some of this uh, into part two. Um, But the second part is kind of first, well, first part, knowing the truth. Uh, what does scripture say about it? Kind of what do the studies say that you just brought up and and are they born this way and that kind of thing? Uh, and then the second kind of way to respond is speaking it with compassion. So it's truth plus compassion. And this is one of those issues I talked with my students the other day, and they said, you know, well, if you talk against, if you speak against abortion or speak against homosexuality, you might upset someone. And I thought, you know, well, you know, if you're speaking against slavery in the 1800s, you might upset some slave owners. But should that make us stay, you know, be quiet on an issue? If we're if we feel strongly about an issue, should we stay quiet? Now, I'm not going to go out and try to upset you. I'm not going to be a jerk about it. And so that's what I love about your second part is, yes, you speak truth. We can't hide the truth or ignore the truth, but we have to do it with compassion. And so uh, in our last couple minutes uh, here, kind of maybe start off with the first question of if we do have um, a gay affirming friend or family member, how or when should we bring up the topic of homosexuality with them? Well, it depends. If they're not a Christian, um, I don't typically do bring bring the topic up. Uh, as I said earlier, my my hope for homosexuals is not heterosexuality; it's holiness. Hmm. You know, I'm not trying to make them straight. I'm trying to lead them straight to Jesus Christ because that is ultimately what matters. Even if they abandoned homosexuality and became heterosexual, they would still be uh, have their their eternal destiny in jeopardy. 
So when I'm talking to non-Christians who are gay uh, or lesbian, um, I, I typically am not bringing up homosexuality. I'm, I'm bringing up the gospel of Jesus Christ uh, because I want them to accept Jesus first. And when that happens and the Holy Spirit comes into their life, he will then transform them from the inside out. And then they'll be convicted of their same-sex sexual behavior or and or other sins. Okay. Mm-hmm. So with with, heter- with with non-Christians, I don't make homosexuality the issue. Now, if they claim to be a Christian and are gay-affirming or, or I should say practicing homosexuals, well, that's a different case. Because once you claim to be a brother or sister in Jesus Christ, now all of the uh, commands and uh, the, Christ- the, the, the um, requirements for Christian living in that, are, that are described in Scripture all now bear upon you. You now fall under the jurisdiction of Scripture. And so you are now committed or you're now required to obey those commands. And so as a fellow brother or sister in Christ, then we are called to speak to our uh, Christian brothers and sisters and call them to holy living Hmm. according to what Scripture says. Now, that doesn't mean that every Christian should talk to every, you know, tell every other Christian who's in sin, you're in sin and and change it. I think we all have to ask ourselves the question, am I the person who's called to speak into the life of this other brother or sister? You know, so – you know, that that has to be evaluated first. You don't yeah. just go around telling everybody that. That's good. Well, I'm talking with Alan Schleeman of Stand to Reason on the topic of homosexuality, truth, and compassion. We talked about the truth part. We went over the first response in that treat homosexuals as you would anyone else. Um, our time is up now, so we're going to have to pick this back up next week where we're going to talk about two more ways to respond uh, to those uh, friends and family that identify uh, with same-sex attraction. And then we're also going to discuss the transgender to truth and compassion next week. So, Alan, thanks for this part one joining me. And make sure the rest of you tune in for part two uh, next week. Thank you, Alan. You bet, Ryan. Thanks a lot. Your love will guide my